This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is So Dead Podcast. Welcome to season two of So Dead, guys. Happy True Crime Tuesday. It's been a while, so we've got a lot to talk about, but we're going to save all of that for the end of the show. Today's episode was a rough one for me to write and research, because uh, this one hits really close to home, quite literally. There's something about watching a crime unfold as it's happening, thinking that you know the facts, and then revisiting it years later and finding out that it was so much worse than you remember. And discovering things that don't necessarily make sense in retrospect, things that raise new questions. I have lost more sleep and been more stressed over this story than anything that I've covered for the podcast so far. Um, I guess what I'm saying is I'm starting 2020 out with a bang. This is a long one and a very disturbing one. So there's your content warning if you need such a thing. (sighs) All right, let's do it. Between January 1998 and August 2007, the city of Lansing was terrorized by a series of violent attacks that were eerily similar. All of the victims were women living within a few miles of the state capitol. Most of them were attacked in their own homes in broad daylight. The MO was often the same, and the suspect's description was always the same. Over the years, several Lansing men were arrested, some of whom were later released. More than a decade later, questions remain. Were these crimes connected? Is everyone responsible behind bars? And could any of it have been prevented? Lansing is Michigan's capital city and is located in the center of the Lower Peninsula or the middle of the palm of your right hand if you're keen to using your hand as a map of Michigan. The city spans roughly 40 square miles over three counties and is home to well over 100,000 residents. It is a diverse community of lawmakers, factory workers, entrepreneurs, farmers, college students, and above all, families. Most importantly, for me, Lansing is home. I was born in Lansing, I grew up in Lansing, and I lived in Lansing when all of this happened. It began on January 24, 1998. An 18-year-old white female living on the north end of Lansing woke at 3.10 a.m., to find a strange man in her bedroom. He warned her not to look at his face and then asked for someone named Tony before saying that he might have the wrong house. It became clear very quickly, however, that the man was exactly where he intended to be. He raped the teenager, then disappeared into the night. He was described as a black male in his early 20s, 5'11", with short black hair. Police believe he entered the home through an unlocked door. Over the next six months, six more young women living on Lansing's north side were attacked in a similar fashion. The attacker would enter through an unlocked door or window in the middle of the night, and the woman would wake up to find him standing in her bedroom. He would often ask for or mention someone named Tony, then rape the victim before fleeing into the night. He never had a weapon, but would often find an object inside the home to use as a weapon. All of the victims were white females in their late teens or 20s who lived alone. The suspect was always described as a black male in his 20s, medium build, between 5 foot 6 and 6 feet tall, with short black hair. The women of Lansing were terrified. 
the police were stumped. And then, just as abruptly as the violence began, it ended for almost an entire year. On May 20th, 1999, a young man knocked on the door of a home on West Lapeer Street in Lansing around noon. He asked for someone named Kathy. When the woman who lived in the house opened the door, the man grabbed her wrist and forced his way inside, then raped her at knife point. When the woman was able to get away sometime later, her attacker, a tall black man in his 20s, fled. Aside from the fact that it happened during the daytime instead of at night, this incident was very much like the attacks that took place the year before. Same part of town, same guise of asking for someone else as if he was accidentally at the wrong house, same victim demographic, same description of the suspect. There was even a vehicle identical to the one reported to be driven by the serial rapist spotted in the neighborhood of the May 20th victim around the time of the attack. So, definitely sounds like the same guy. A week later, police took a suspect into custody, 21-year-old Lansing man Melvin Eugene Hobbs. Hobbs lived in the 400 block of West Lapeer, so on the same street as the victim, and he fit the description of her attacker. What's more, Hobbs was well-known to police. He had just pled guilty to another sexual assault on May 1st and was out on bond awaiting sentencing at the time of the May 20th attack. Police were confident they had their man, and the entire city was hopeful that, at long last, the serial rapist nightmare was over. But it wasn't. Authorities quickly labeled the May 20th attack an isolated incident, despite all of the similarities. According to them, the serial rapist was still out there. And just two months later, on July 26th, and with Melvin Eugene Hobbs behind bars, the serial rapist struck again. A 23-year-old white female awoke at 4.20 a.m. to the horrifying scene of a man on top of her. Can you, I just, I cannot even imagine. That's nightmare fodder right there. The man repeatedly asked for Tony as he covered the woman's face and threatened her with a knife. She begged him not to rape her, and so surprisingly, he didn't. The suspect left the house without sexually assaulting the victim. Described simply as a young black male, police believe the suspect gained entry to the home by removing the screen from the victim's bedroom window. He was back. Over the next several weeks, three more women on Lansing's north side were attacked in the middle of the night by a tall, young black man with a medium build who entered the home through an unlocked door or window and did not have a weapon on him, but used items within the victim's home as weapons. He often asked for Tony before sexually assaulting his victim. The final attack occurred on September 11, 1999, just moments after a failed attempt to rape a woman a few blocks away. At 4.25 a.m., a 27-year-old white female was awakened by the sound of her dog growling. She found a strange man standing in her bedroom. He said he was looking for Tony, then raped her. Police believe he entered the home through an open window. Things move quickly from there. Three days later, on September 14th, police announced that three of the 11 attacks had been linked to one another through DNA evidence. Not that anyone doubted that these attacks were related in the first place. The next day, police arrested 27-year-old Curtis Marco Williams at his fiancé's house in the 900 block of West Lapeer Street in Lansing. If that sounds familiar... 
It's because West Lapeer Street is where the May 20th attack took place. And it's also the street that Melvin Eugene Hobbs, who was convicted of that May 20th attack, lived on. Curtis Marco Williams was arrested when his fingerprints matched a fingerprint lifted from a patio chair outside the home of a woman who was attacked on September 7th. Her attacker had gained entry by pushing a patio chair up to a window, then popping out the screen. The patio chair had prints on it, and those prints belonged to Curtis Marco Williams. He was charged with first-degree criminal sexual conduct and breaking and entering with the intent to commit sexual assault. Police were confident that they would be able to link him to the other attacks being attributed to the serial rapist. But Williams steadfastly proclaimed his innocence and his family came to his defense. One of their biggest complaints was that Williams did not look like any of the police sketches that had been released. For one thing, he'd been shaving his head for years, and all of the sketches showed a man with short hair. Williams was no stranger to local law enforcement officials, although his fiancée described him rather simply as a homebody that liked to fish and sit at home. She said that many of the dates of the attacks didn't add up because Williams was with her those nights. His mother, Ruthie Deer, told reporters that her son was learning disabled and unable to work and that he just started collecting disability payments and moved into his own apartment. She said he was a fighter and got himself into trouble from time to time, but that he would never commit rape. Within a couple weeks of his arrest, Williams was charged with the September 11th rape as well. Police again matched his fingerprint with a print lifted from the scene, this time from an aluminum rim around the window frame the attacker used to enter the house. Ingham County Prosecutor Stuart Dunnings III tried Williams for the September 11th attack first, after his DNA-matched semen found inside the victim. According to a forensic scientist that testified at the trial, the chance that the DNA belonged to someone else was one in 5.9 billion, so zero, basically. By the time his first trial began, Williams had been charged in three other cases, bringing the total number of cases against him to five out of the 11 that he was suspected of. On March 10, 2000, Curtis Marco Williams was convicted of first-degree criminal sexual conduct and home invasion and was sentenced to a minimum of 50 years in prison. Upon the reading of the guilty verdict, the courtroom erupted into violence. One of Williams' sisters was taken into custody for physically threatening a deputy. This enraged Williams, and as officers tried to usher him out of the courtroom, he was yelling, you didn't have to touch her like that, you don't have to grab her like that, and he resisted the officers. He elbowed one deputy in the neck and kicked him in the groin, headbutted another and punched him in the face, then kicked two other officers in the groin. He was maced and subdued by a slew of law enforcement officials, then dragged out of the courtroom, all right in front of two of his victims, who were already terrified of this monster. I just can't imagine how traumatizing being in that courtroom alone must have been and then to have something like that happen. Just awful. In May of 2000, Williams was tried for one of the 1998 rapes in which his DNA was once again matched to DNA taken from a victim. Again, he was found guilty of first-degree criminal sexual conduct. 
he was sentenced to a minimum of 58 years in prison with his sentences to run concurrently, which meant it really only added another eight years to his sentence. Ingham County Prosecutor Stuart Dunnings III said that he didn't expect to try Williams in the other cases since he was already serving such a long sentence, but that he was the only suspect in all nine remaining cases being attributed to the serial rapist. Thus ended a very ugly, very scary chapter in Lansing history. I do find it odd, though, that both Curtis Marco Williams and Melvin Eugene Hobbs, two men who were around the same age, looked a lot alike, and lived on the same street in the same neighborhood, were committing very similar crimes against a very similar demographic during the exact same time frame. One more thing. At his sentencing, Williams told the court, You took my life, but I'll get it back. Until then, you watch your back, because my man is still out there. I am not the person that did this. And those words would come back to haunt authorities just a few years later. On July 21, 2003, a 62-year-old Lansing woman who lived alone was leaving her home near the state capitol just after 9 a.m. to head to work on a Monday morning when a man approached her on the porch asking if he could do yard work or clean her eaves troughs for a few bucks. After a short conversation, he forced his way into the house and demanded money. He didn't have a weapon, but he used items inside the home to restrain the woman, then sexually assaulted her. The suspect was described as a young black man, six feet tall and clean-shaven with a muscular build. Exactly a week later, on July 28th, an 80-year-old woman who lived alone in a home in the same neighborhood was attacked in a similar manner. A man approached her home mid-morning, knocked on the door, and asked if he could do yard work or clean her eaves troughs for a few bucks. He then forced his way inside and assaulted her physically, but not sexually. The suspect was described as a tall, young, black man. When these reports hit the news, a 49-year-old woman who lived alone in the same neighborhood called police to report a similar incident. She said a man knocked on her door and asked if he could do any yard work or clean her eaves troughs for a few bucks. Before the interaction could go further, the woman's dog scared the man off. So this is all starting to sound a bit familiar, a little bit different, but a lot of familiar. But it can't be the serial rapist because Curtis Marco Williams is in prison. Now I want to tell you guys a quick story. In 1999, when the serial rapes were happening, I was 19 years old. Um, I had just given birth to my first son. I lived in a home on the south side of Lansing. And one day, my son and I had come home from the grocery store. Um, he was still an infant, so he was in one of those heavy-ass little baby carriers. And we lived in a ranch where both the front and back door were on the same side of the house. So you could look at the look out the back door and see the front door and vice versa. Um, so we came home from the grocery store middle of the afternoon, um, came in through the front door. He was asleep in his carrier, so I set his carrier down by the door, locked the door, um, and then I was doing some laundry, which the basement stairs were near the back door. As I was coming back up the stairs, I could hear someone knocking on the front door. So I peeked my head out the back door and I saw um, a tall, young, black man standing on my front porch. And he had the screen open and was turning the door handle, trying to get the door open. Um, and, you know, I was 19. I was afraid. But the big thing was my baby was directly on the other side of that door. If he kicked it in or 
you know, forced the door open, that door was going to hit my child. Um, so I yelled out, I think I just said, you know, hey, or hello, or something like that. Um, so he turned and he very quickly started coming toward me. Um, I closed the screen and I locked it, which was silly in retrospect because he could have easily gotten that open if he wanted to. But he stopped on the other side of the screen and he said to me, I'm looking to do some work. I need, I, I believe he said he needed a bus ticket. He was trying to get a bus ticket to go visit a family member. And he specifically said, can I do some yard work for you or clean your eaves troughs? I told him no. Um, my husband takes care of all of that. Even though I was lying, I was not married at the time. And he just stood there for a few seconds and stared at me. And I stared at him and I was terrified and my heart was racing. And I just knew that this was a bad situation. But then he turned and he walked away down the street, never saw him again. Well, didn't see him again for a long time. So to me, in my head, a few years later, when I heard these stories on the news about a man fitting the exact same description, going to homes in the middle of the day and asking that exact same question that I was asked specifically about the yard work and the eaves troughs, to me, the 1998 and 99 rapes were connected to the 2003 rapes. Um, I don't know what I was doing in 99 that I never saw the news that Curtis Marco Williams had been arrested for those. Um, so in my mind, those were unsolved. These attacks happening in 2003 were unsolved. They were all probably the same person, and they were all probably the person that I had encountered at my house that day. Whether that was true to some degree or not remains to be seen, but that was kind of where my head was regarding this situation as a young woman living in the town where all of this was happening at the time that it was happening. Okay, so our story picks back up in December 2004, and things are about to get a lot worse. On December 11th, 45-year-old Barbara Jean Tuttle called 911 to report she'd been attacked in her North Washington Avenue home about a mile from the state capitol. She was treated at a local hospital for a blow to the head and a sexual assault. A rape kit was collected, but not tested. She gave a description of her attacker that police later described as vague, um, and the case kind of went nowhere. But nine days later, on December 20th, another call came into 911 from Tuttle's residence. Her roommate, 77-year-old Levi Wilson, had arrived home to find Barbara Jean dead on the living room floor. She'd been sodomized and bludgeoned to death. Police had no witnesses and no leads, and were unsure if her murder was related to the attack a week prior, in which she'd also been raped and bludgeoned. Her previous rape kit remained untested. Barbara Jean Tuttle was a mother with a reputation as a kind-hearted woman who loved children. She often relied on local charities for medical care and meals, but she gave back as well, volunteering her time at the Cristo Ray Community Center. Her murder went unsolved. Lansing Community College is one of the largest community colleges in Michigan, with a student body of over 20,000. It's located in the heart of downtown, right near the state capitol. Professor Carolyn Cronenberg taught there for over 25 years and specialized in student development courses. She was a mother of two sons, a lover of animals, and a favorite professor among students. 
In 2005, she taught a Sunday morning class on techniques of study. The class, in room 223 of the Student Services Building, started at 9 a.m. On January 23, 2005, one of her students arrived for class about 15 minutes early and stumbled upon a horrific scene. Professor Cronenberg had been sexually assaulted with an object and bludgeoned and was barely clinging to life as she lay on the floor of her classroom bleeding to death. She died a short time later. It was the first murder on campus in Lansing Community College's history. Almost immediately, authorities zeroed in on Claude McCollum, a 27-year-old black male with a tall, slender frame. McCollum was a student at the college with no fixed address who sometimes slept on campus. He was once caught sleeping in one of the building's ventilation systems. McCollum had a low IQ and was said by family to become easily confused. During an interrogation by police that was not recorded, and during which McCollum did not have an attorney present, he conceded that it was possible that he might have killed Professor Cronenberg while sleepwalking. He was charged with her murder three days later. On February 14, 2006, a jury of nine women and three men found McCollum guilty of first-degree murder and first-degree criminal sexual conduct, the only evidence that questionable, hypothetical confession. McCollum was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. There was no reason for authorities to suspect a connection between the deaths of Carolyn Cronenberg and Barbara Jean Tuttle at the time. The two women led very different lives, and the only thing they had in common was that they were both white females who were raped and bludgeoned to death within a few miles of one another, just about a month apart. The book was closed on the Cronenberg case, and the Tuttle case remained unsolved. A year and a half later, on July 26, 2007, Lansing City Councilwoman Carol Wood was in a late morning meeting on her 57th birthday when she received a phone call from a staff member. Wood's mother had cut her hand and passed out from blood loss and was being taken to the hospital. Wood left her meeting and rushed to her mother's home on West Lapeer Street in Lansing, just blocks from the state capitol. If this sounds familiar, it's because we've already talked about West Lapeer Street three times, in fact. It's where a woman was raped in her home in broad daylight in 1999, where the woman's attacker, Melvin Eugene Hobbs, lived, and where serial rapist Curtis Marco Williams lived as well. 76-year-old Ruth Hallman was her daughter's best friend and next-door neighbor. She'd lived in her home across the street from His Grace Lutheran Church since 1978, and she fought back when gangs and drugs began to overtake the neighborhood. She led her neighborhood watch and pressured police to maintain a stronger presence in the area. She cared deeply for her city and was always the first person to offer help when someone needed it. Around 10.30 a.m. on July 26th, a neighbor stopped by to check on Hallman. The elderly woman managed to get to the door and open it, but she was in dire need of help as she was bleeding profusely from the head and hand. The neighbor called 911, and by the time paramedics arrived, Hallman could barely speak. She kept telling them to call the police, but then she couldn't tell them why. Her hand was mangled to the point that one of her fingers was nearly severed, and she had multiple head wounds. 
Her lawnmower was out in the middle of the yard, so it was reasonable conclusion that there had been some sort of accident with the lawnmower that injured her hand, and then she fell or passed out and injured her head, um, which was where that theory came from. But it was so much worse than that. Hallman had been bludgeoned with a blunt object. The hand injuries were defensive wounds, and she died in the hospital two days after the attack. Hunter Park, less than two miles from the state capitol, is home to one of the city's only public pools. In the summer of 2007, the pool was drained and closed as it underwent renovations. This left the park nearly deserted and a breeding ground for illegal activity, especially at night. Less than two weeks after the murder of Ruth Hallman, on August 7th, two Lansing police officers were conducting a routine patrol of the park at 4.30 a.m. when they happened upon a gruesome discovery. The body of 36-year-old sex worker Deborah K. Cook was found slumped against a tree. She'd been beaten about the head and face, sexually assaulted with an object, and was naked from the waist down. There were no witnesses, and police had no clues to go off of. They also had no reason to believe that her murder might be connected to the murder of Ruth Hallman. The two women couldn't have led more different lives. But just two days later, a shocking eerily familiar crime gave the first clue that the city of Lansing had a serial killer in its midst. Around 1 p.m. on August 9th, police were called to the scene of a murder at a home on North Washington Avenue, a home they'd been to before. It was the home of Levi Wilson, who'd found his roommate, Barbara Jean Tuttle, bludgeoned to death two and a half years earlier. And now, another woman had been killed. 46-year-old Deborah Renfers, a former sex worker who was trying to turn her life around, and a friend of Barbara Jean Tuttle's, had been bludgeoned to death. That is three Lansing women murdered in two weeks, one in the same house where another murder occurred just a couple years before. Something was going on. As police assured the media, the public, and even the victims' families that the murders likely weren't connected, they called in the FBI and formed a task force. Residents were warned to go about their daily routines with caution, especially women. Um, and I vividly remember those warnings. I actually worked for a utility company that was in the same neighborhood where these attacks were occurring. And so I worked nights and we were not allowed to enter or exit the building on our own. There was extra security. We had to do things in the buddy system. And that's quite quite a thing when the police won't say it, but the news is saying it and everybody knows that there's a serial killer attacking women in the neighborhood that you work in and travel through daily. Those warnings weren't enough. Just a few weeks later, on August 27th, police were summoned to the home of 67-year-old Sandra Eichhorn, less than two miles from the state capitol. Her son had stopped by to visit on a Monday afternoon when he found his mother lying dead in a pool of blood. She'd been stabbed over 30 times with a knife from her own kitchen. At her table was a partially eaten bowl of spaghetti that Sandra had prepared herself for lunch. On the end of the fork, sitting in the bowl, a clue. Finally. Stuck on the end of the fork was a business card to a local computer repair shop with the name Chili Smith scribbled on the back. Police questioned the shop owner, who told them about a suspicious man who'd recently been in trying to get a laptop password unlocked. 
to have the laptop worked on, the man had to leave his personal info, name, phone number, and address, and he did. The man was Matthew Emanuel Macon, a 27-year-old parolee with a lengthy criminal record. Could he be the serial killer? The search was on. Police were moving fast, but Macon was faster. And just a little side note here, again, being in this area, when police were trying to track the killer, police dogs actually tracked his scent uh, onto the back porch of one of my close friends who lived right around the corner from Sandra Icorn. And that was terrifying to think that had she not been at work that day or had her husband not been there with her that day, that it could have been her. So it was just terrifying to feel that coming so much closer. Every time there was another attack, it felt closer and closer as this was all going on. The day after Sandra Icorn was murdered, the killer struck again. 56-year-old Linda Jackson was alone at her Jones Street home just blocks from the state capitol when there was a knock at her back door. She was aware of the potential danger. Uh, While chatting with a neighbor out walking her dogs just a minute earlier, she'd warned the older woman to be careful because there was a serial killer on the loose. Jackson knew that women in her neighborhood were being murdered, so she was already on guard when she opened the door. She encountered a tall, young black man who asked her if he could do yard work or clean her eaves troughs for a few bucks. Despite his pleasant demeanor, the man was tense. His jaw was clenched and he kept glancing up the street to see if anyone was watching. Jackson told him that she didn't have any work for him, but offered to take his number and pass it along to friends. She grabbed a pen and paper, warning the man to stay outside because her dog didn't like strangers. He gave her his name. Chili Smith, along with an address and phone number. When Jackson turned her back to place the notepad on the counter, her attacker struck. He forced his way inside, grabbed a beer bottle from the kitchen counter, and began to beat her about the head and face with it. She started to scream, and her dog, Cheyenne, a five-year-old shepherd mix, answered her call for help. Cheyenne flew down the stairs and lunged at the attacker, snapping and barking. Startled and terrified, the attacker ran off. Linda Jackson called 911, but she still didn't quite understand the gravity of her situation. She thought she'd just been the victim of an attempted robbery. But when close to a dozen cop cars arrived on the scene, and later when the mayor showed up to visit her at the hospital, she understood. She'd nearly been a victim of the capital city killer. She gave police a description of her attacker, and a sketch was circulated to local media outlets. Police continued to look for Matthew Emanuel Macon, whose street name, they discovered, was Chili. And the name Chili Smith was connected to the attack on Linda Jackson and the murder of Sandra Eichhorn. Whether or not he was their killer, Matthew Emanuel Macon was in violation of his parole for failing to register as a sex offender, which gave police cause to arrest him on site. Over 40 police officers and FBI agents descended upon Macon's place of business in Holt, Michigan, but he hadn't shown up for work that day. Undeterred, authorities began a grid search, with Captain Ray Hall and Lieutenant Noel Garcia in charge of the operation. As this was all going on, you know, we didn't have, I mean, I guess, you know, social media existed, but we didn't, Phones were just starting to get smart, and social media was just becoming a huge thing, especially mobile. Um, And so we were still getting the news real time through the radio and things like that. 
Um, and as all of this was going on, you could feel it in the air. They're searching for this man. There's another attack, another attack, more. It's happening faster. Um, and it was absolutely terrifying. Um, at the time, I was a single mother living alone with my two kids. We weren't living within the city of Lansing any longer. We were a few miles out. For some reason that I will probably never understand, the night that the big manhunt was underway, I chose to watch the movie Zodiac, um, about the Zodiac killer, alone in my home, just a couple miles from where police and the FBI were searching for an active serial killer. So if you guys ever have questions about my life choices, that should sum them up for you right there. Coincidentally, it was Hall and Garcia that happened upon a man walking down the street in Lansing Township that matched Macon's description. They stopped their vehicle in the middle of the street, jumped out, and took the man down. It was him. Lieutenant Garcia handcuffed Macon and later said that when he looked into his eyes, he saw nothing but pure evil. It would take time to build a case against Macon for the murders, but until then, police could hold him on parole violations. They couldn't be 100% certain, not yet, but they were cautiously optimistic that they had captured the capital city killer. But who was Matthew Emanuel Macon? Born in Lansing on September 8, 1979 to Erlene and Jim Macon, Matthew had an exceptionally violent upbringing. When he was three, his older sister was placed in foster care after allegations of sexual assault against her stepfather, Matthew's father. When he was five, Matthew was kidnapped by that same father. Erlene and James had separated, and Erlene had taken out a restraining order against her abusive, estranged husband. During a raging thunderstorm one October night in 1984, Jim Macon kicked in the door of his wife's home, snatched his two young sons out of the bathtub, and absconded with them into the night. Police found the boys at their father's house and returned them to their mother, but for some reason did not arrest Jim Macon. So later that night, Jim returned to his wife's home and chased her down the middle of the street in the rain with a baseball bat, threatening to kill anyone that tried to help her. Matthew was in and out of foster homes and juvenile facilities for much of his youth. In 1989, he ran away from a foster home and broke into a comic and bike shop in Lansing. In 1992, he was sent to Boys Town in Nebraska for treatment. In 1994, he escaped from Highfield's home for juvenile offenders in Onondaga, Michigan. He stole a car and he broke into a grocery store where he stole food and snacks. When he was 14, he was convicted of sexually assaulting a girl younger than the age of 13 with an object at his mother's Lansing home. He was sent to W.J. Maxey Boys Training School near Ann Arbor in May of 1995. Had he not been sent there due to where he lived, he would have been going to Sexton High School in Lansing, um, which is where I went, and we likely would have been in the same grade. Matthew was labeled a habitual sex offender who would require lifetime vigilance. He was at Maxey for a year until May 1996. He was then sent to a sex offender treatment program where he remained until shortly after his 18th birthday in October of 1997. When he was released, social workers wrote in his file that the likelihood he would commit another sex offense was very slim. 
I want to bring up here that just three months after Macon was released, the serial rapes in Lansing began, the ones we talked about at the very beginning of this episode. I know we've talked about a lot since then, so just to recap the most important part, two men were arrested for a string of very similar sexual assaults in Lansing in 1998 and 1999. There were 12 similar attacks in total. Curtis Marco Williams was convicted of two, but suspected in nine others. Melvin Eugene Hobbs was convicted of just one in what was called an isolated incident. Why is this significant? Because Melvin Eugene Hobbs is the older brother of Matthew Emanuel Macon. And because Curtis Marco Williams, who insisted on his innocence and warned that the real perpetrator was still out there, very closely resembles both Macon and Hobbs. In 1999, Macon was charged with his first offense as an adult. He grabbed a woman by the throat and stole her purse and was charged with larceny from a person. He was arrested right around the same time that serial rapist Curtis Marco Williams was arrested. So they both went to jail right as the rapes stopped. Macon was convicted and sentenced to one year in jail and three years probation in March 2000 the exact same month that Curtis Marco Williams was convicted of first-degree criminal sexual conduct and sentenced to 50 years in prison. Now, I am not implying by any means that Curtis Marco Williams is an innocent man. I don't think that. They got him on fingerprint and DNA evidence. And not just DNA evidence from the scene of the crime that could be easily explained away in a million different ways by a good defense attorney, but DNA found inside two of the victims. That's some pretty solid evidence of his guilt. What I am saying is, there were nine other victims. Nine other cases he wasn't tried for. We already know that at least one other man committed a copycat crime in the same neighborhood during the same time frame. Curtis Marco Williams, Melvin Eugene Hobbs, and Matthew Emanuel Macon were all about the same age, lived in the same neighborhood, and had very similar physical descriptions during the 98 and 99 serial rapes. Not to mention the fact that Macon and Hobbs are brothers. And the timeline? The rape started within a couple months of Macon being released from custody and stopped when he was sent to jail on that larceny charge. Of course I believe Curtis Marco Williams is guilty and should be in prison. All I'm saying is, knowing everything that we know now, was it just him? Is it possible that he wasn't the only man raping these women? In 2001, Macon violated his probation for the larceny charge and was sentenced to two to ten years in prison. He served less than two years and he was released in April 2003. Three months later, the attacks on Lansing women started up again. This time the attacks were during the day instead of at night, and the women were much older but it was still single white females being attacked while home alone by a man that fit the description of the serial rapist from 98 and 99, which is the exact same description one might give of Matthew Emanuel Macon and or his brother, Melvin Eugene Hobbs. The 2003 attacks went unsolved. Macon would later be named a suspect, um, but he was never charged. In December 2003, Macon was sent back to prison for another parole violation. He was released 10 months later in September of 2004. Just a few months later, 
Barbara Jean Tuttle was sexually assaulted and murdered in her own home. That case went unsolved. A month after that, Professor Carolyn Cronenberg was sexually assaulted and murdered in her own classroom. Claude McCollum was convicted, but maintained his innocence. Days after the Cronenberg murder, Macon was arrested for third-degree home invasion and assaulting an officer. He was sent back to jail for another year. He served his time, was released, and by May 2006, he had violated his parole again and was sent back to prison again. On June 26, 2007, Macon was released from prison once more. Exactly one month later, Ruth Hallman, mother of Lansing City Councilwoman Carol Wood, was murdered. At the time of his arrest on suspicion of being the capital city killer, Matthew Emanuel Macon was a father of four young children by three different women. The day he was captured was a happy day at the Lansing Police Department, but authorities had to keep things quiet until they were sure Macon was their guy. Little did they know, the terror was not over. The day after Macon's arrest, on August 29, 2007, a nightmarish scene unfolded just blocks from where Linda Jackson had been attacked the day before. A realtor met a family with a young child at a vacant house on Hickory Street for a showing around 2.30 p.m. When they entered the house, they found a trail of blood that led to a naked, badly beaten woman lying on the bathroom floor, barely clinging to life. She'd been sexually assaulted and bludgeoned with the toilet tank lid, likely because the house was empty and there were no other weapons inside. The woman was Karen Delgado Yates, a 40-year-old mother and caregiver who was working hard to get back on her feet after a rough patch that included homelessness and solicitation. She died on her way to the hospital. But how could there be another victim if Macon was already in custody? The medical examiner determined that Yates was attacked the day prior on August 28th, likely immediately after Macon's unsuccessful attempt to rape and murder Linda Jackson. On August 31, 2007, Lansing Police Chief Mark Alley held a press conference, naming Matthew Emanuel Macon as the suspected capital city killer. He was charged with the murders of Sandra Eichhorn and Karen Delgado Yates and the attack on Linda Jackson with additional charges pending. Macon's family rallied around him, convinced that he had been wrongfully accused. But just days after his arrest, Macon confessed in the most horrific way possible. He told detectives, I get pleasure off pain. I just like to see fear in people's faces. He said that he preyed on elderly women living alone because they were less likely to put up a fight. He told police that Barbara Jean Tuttle, the first of two women killed in the Washington Street home, was his first victim. He said that he lured her outside by telling her there was a fire on her porch. After looking around and finding no sign of fire, Tuttle turned to go back inside and Macon grabbed her, dragged her in the house, and bludgeoned her to death. He made no mention, however, of being the person responsible for raping and beating Tuttle in her home just nine days prior to her murder. When asked about the murder of Ruth Hallman, he said that he went to her house and asked to borrow her lawnmower. She kept a whole shed of lawn tools for her neighbors to use. She happily gave him the mower and told him to bring it back when he was finished. He asked for a bottle of water, and as Hallman was getting it for him, he forced his way inside her home. 
In a kitchen drawer, he found a small hammer that her husband used to use to build children's toys and picture frames. He used it to bludgeon her to death. He stole money from her purse and collectible coins she kept in display books. The murder of Deborah K. Cook was a different matter. According to Macon, the woman testified against his brother, Melvin Eugene Hobbs, and got him sent to prison. Her death was retaliation. Court records did show that Hobbs was charged in a home invasion that took place on June 22, 2007, and that Deborah K. Cook was the victim. She was murdered less than two months later. Macon said he met her at a gas station and offered her money for sex. After a bit of an argument, they agreed on a price of $20 and headed to Hunter Park to complete their business transaction, where Macon brutally attacked and killed her. Macon couldn't quite explain why he murdered a second woman at the Washington Street home. He said he was walking by and saw the door open, so he walked in. He found Deborah Remfers lying in her bed and used a knife from her kitchen to stab her to death while she slept. This actually contradicts reports that Remfers was bludgeoned to death like most of the other victims. Macon got Sandra Eichhorn to open her door by posing as someone looking to do yard work or clean her eaves troughs for a few bucks. He offered her a business card, and when she reached out to take it from him, he grabbed her and he forced his way inside. He stabbed her to death with a knife from her own kitchen, then took money from the home before leaving. But that wasn't all. To the shock of detectives, Macon also confessed to the murder of Professor Carolyn Cronenberg, of which another man had already been convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Claude McCollum III was no stranger to violence. Born in Lansing in 1977 to Claude Jr. and Linda McCollum, Claude was just a year old when he watched his mother shoot his father to death in their West Lansing home. Claude's father was abusive, and his parents were going through a messy divorce. On October 9, 1978, one-year-old Claude and his two-year-old brother were home with their mother and her new boyfriend when their father kicked in the front door. Following a marriage marked by violence and repeated death threats, Linda feared for the safety of her family and was armed with a twenty-two caliber shotgun. She fired ten shots at her estranged husband, hitting him just once, but once was enough. He died at the hospital, and Linda was convicted of involuntary manslaughter and sentenced to five years probation at the age of 21. Linda's new boyfriend was no less abusive than her dead husband, and he beat her boys on a regular basis. Little Claude especially, because he was said to look exactly like his father. To keep her boys safe, Linda eventually relinquished custody of them to their paternal grandparents. The boys grew up in South Lansing, where Claude became known as a gentle giant. By the time he began attending classes at Lansing Community College, he was quiet and withdrawn. He kept to himself and didn't like to impose on friends and family which was why he didn't seek outside help when police began questioning him about the murder of Carolyn Cronenberg. Due to his learning disability, McCollum got mixed up easily, which led to his hypothetical confession that he supposed he could have committed the murder if he'd been sleepwalking. Not only was this the only evidence used to convict him, but more substantial evidence that could have easily acquitted him was overlooked and or intentionally suppressed. Like the DNA found under Professor Cronenberg's fingernails that didn't belong to Claude McCollum. 
or the determination made by a state police forensic scientist that it was very unlikely that McCollum was at the crime scene, as there was no DNA, fingerprint, or blood evidence placing him there. The crime scene was so brutal and bloody, and perpetrated during such a short time frame, that whoever killed Professor Cronenberg must have left unintentional clues behind, and none of those pointed back at Claude McCollum. Know whose fingerprints and DNA were found at the crime scene? Matthew Emanuel Makins. And his information was already logged in a state database due to his lengthy criminal record. Had police been looking for anyone other than Claude McCollum, they could have easily found the truth. And then there was the video evidence that placed McCollum in a building across campus, sleeping at the time of the murder. Michigan State Police wrote a report prior to the trial stating that based on surveillance video footage, McCollum could not have killed Professor Cronenberg. The report was turned over to the Ingham County Prosecutor's Office and then just... ignored? This key piece of evidence was never provided to McCollum's defense attorney. Claude McCollum was found guilty of first-degree murder on Valentine's Day 2006 and served a year and a half of his life sentence before Matthew Emanuel Macon confessed to the murder of Carolyn Cronenberg. Macon explained to detectives how he was relieved when McCollum was arrested for the crime and how he actually met McCollum when they were both locked up. Him, a serial killer in the making, back in jail on another parole violation, and McCollum awaiting trial for a murder he didn't commit. Making confessed to the Cronenberg murder just days after his August 2007 arrest. In September, Claude McCollum's attorney and Ingham County Prosecutor Stuart Dunnings III petitioned the Michigan Supreme Court to overturn the guilty verdict. In October, McCollum was cleared of all charges and released from custody. The Michigan Attorney General's Office launched a criminal investigation into the handling of the case, and Assistant Ingham County Prosecutor Eric Matoizic was fired for his role in the wrongful conviction. Ingham County Prosecutor Stuart Dunnings III escaped responsibility for the most part, but he was found guilty in the court of public opinion. Claude McCollum sued the city of Lansing, the Michigan State Police, and Lansing Community College. He asked the courts for $25,000. Dunnings told reporters that there was no way McCollum would be awarded that sum of money. And he was right. Claude McCollum was awarded $2 million instead. The trial of Matthew Emanuel Macon began on May 5, 2008 and lasted just three days. He was tried for his last three crimes, the murders of Sandra Eichhorn and Karen Delgado Yates and the attack on Linda Jackson. By the time his trial began, Macon had recanted his confession and had a rather strange defense strategy. Remember how, in his confession, he said that he killed Deborah K. Cook to keep his brother out of prison? Well, he blamed that same brother, Melvin Eugene Hobbs, for the murder of Sandra Eichhorn and the attack on Linda Jackson. His attorney explained away the DNA evidence found at the scene of the murders by saying that Macon and Hobbs, who lived together, shared clothing. So it made sense for Macon's DNA to be on the bloody glove at Sandra Eichhorn's house. Macon blamed another man, Davin Lewis, for the murder of Karen Delgado Yates. Apparently, Yates knew one of the other murder victims, Deborah K. Cook, the one who'd been attacked by Melvin Eugene Hobbs just months before her murder. Allegedly, Yates was telling people that Davin Lewis had killed Cook. 
So he killed her in retaliation. Confused yet? Me too. Quick backstory on Davin Lewis, though. He was only 18 years old during the summer of 2007 when the murders were committed. Just a year prior, on April 13, 2006, he was shot five times on an elementary school playground in Lansing during a drug deal gone bad. He spent over a month in the hospital. On September 27, 2007, just a month after Macon was arrested for the murders, Lewis committed an armed robbery at a North Lansing convenience store and was arrested the following day. Not really connected to anything, just, just some backstory there. On May 8, 2008, Matthew Emanuel Macon was convicted of two counts of first-degree murder, one count of assault with intent to commit murder, one count of torture, and one count of first-degree home invasion. He was sentenced to two life sentences plus 175 years and is currently housed at the Macomb Correctional Facility. Between January 1998 and August 2007, over a dozen Lansing women were brutally raped and or attacked in their own homes. Seven more were murdered. Curtis Marco Williams was convicted of two of those rapes, but remains the only suspect in nine others. He is currently housed at the Muskegon Correctional Facility and will be eligible for parole in 2058 when he is 85 years old. Claude McCollum was convicted of one of the murders, but was later exonerated and is now a millionaire courtesy of the city of Lansing. Davin Lewis was accused of two of the murders, but was never charged. He is currently incarcerated at the Baraga Correctional Facility in the Upper Peninsula on armed robbery and felony weapons charges, and he will be up for parole in 2027 when he is 38 years old. Matthew Emanuel Macon was convicted of two murders and one assault, but remains the only suspect in the other five murders attributed to the capital city killer. He will never again see freedom. His brother, Melvin Eugene Hobbs, was convicted of one of the rapes and of an attack on one of the women who wound up murdered. He was accused of at least one of the murders and another of the attacks. He was attacking women during the serial rapes and during the serial murders and has ties to both the convicted serial rapist and the convicted serial killer. Not only is he not behind bars, but he is currently listed as non-compliant on the state sex offender registry. During his brother's trial, Lansing Police Detective James Gill was asked if investigators compared Hobbs's fingerprints to any found at any of the crime scenes. His response was, Melvin Hobbs was not part of this investigation. Is it possible that Curtis Marco Williams wasn't responsible for all of the rapes, or that Matthew Emanuel Macon wasn't responsible for all of the murders. Were there others involved? The possibility of a bungled investigation certainly isn't out of the question, given the wrongful conviction of Claude McCollum and the fact that authorities missed multiple opportunities to keep Macon behind bars. And here's something. All of these cases were tried by Ingham County Prosecutor Stuart Dunnings III. In 2015, an FBI investigation of a sex trafficking ring led to charges being brought against Dunnings, who was a longtime client of the ring. Evidence revealed that Dunnings solicited sex workers on hundreds of occasions and even once used his position in office to force a woman into prostitution. He was accused of fixing cases, 
giving light sentences or clearing charges for sex workers and other criminals he was personally connected to. He wound up being charged with 15 sex-related crimes and faced up to 26 years in prison. He took a plea deal and was sentenced to one year in jail instead. Word on the street was, everyone on the street knew exactly what Dunnings was about and had for years. Many of the attacks covered in this episode were committed against sex workers. Is it possible that the shady double life of the prosecuting attorney played a part in how these crimes were investigated and tried? A serial rapist, a serial killer, a crooked prosecutor, a wrongful conviction, unrelated crimes that now, in retrospect, definitely seem related in a number of different ways. Is it possible that something was missed, overlooked, or is it all truly just a series of strange coincidences? Are all of the guilty parties behind bars where they belong, or did authorities only go after the most likely suspects? My primary source for this story was the Lansing State Journal. Tons and tons of articles, uh, a couple of reports from WILX. The best resource I found, though, was an article in the City Pulse written by Todd Haywood on the 10th anniversary of the murders called Summer of Terror, 10 Years Later. You can find a complete list of resources for this episode on the SoDead website. And that, friends, is not at all the story that I intended to tell you today, because what I remembered and what I found through my research were two very different things. In my mind, everything was related, and it was all Matthew Emanuel Macon. Before I started researching this story, I didn't know Curtis Marco Williams even existed. And I didn't know Melvin Eugene Hobbs had a role in the attacks beyond being accused of them by his brother. I believed that Macon was the serial killer and the serial rapist. I assumed that the attacks from 98 and 99 were related to the rest of it because of the experience that I had a man fitting the same description from the later attacks and murders, trying to get into my house in the middle of the day, then asking that very specific question, if he could do yard work or clean my eaves troughs for a few bucks, which is exactly how the 2003 attacker and Matthew Emanuel Macon operated. I had no idea they'd arrested a completely different man for the serial rapes in the 90s. And when I found that out, it just didn't make sense to me. How could it not be related to the Macon case? And then to find out that Macon's brother was also attacking women during the 90s and again during the murders, I could easily be making things up in my head. I do that sometimes. But it just all seems very, very strange and way too convenient for me. What do you guys think? Find the thread for this episode on your favorite social media outlet and sound off in the comments. <sighs> all right, guys, let's change gears please. Um, we've got a lot to talk about. First, the podcast. As you all know by now, Danny made the decision to step away from Sodet at the end of 2019 to focus on family and her new business venture. We'll miss her, of course, and I hope you'll all join me in wishing her well. Everyone has been asking me about the future of the podcast, if I'll bring in another co-host, etc. Um, for now, guys, it's just going to be you and me. I had to go out and buy all new equipment, and the setup I've got right now is just a one-person setup. I've also had to learn how to record and edit and do all of the things on my own, and it's all just a lot easier to do when there's only one person talking, quite honestly. <laughs> um, so as I get more comfortable 
with the recording and with the editing aspect of things and as I continue to purchase equipment and expand my setup, I hope to start bringing in guest hosts and doing interviews again in the future. But it's just us for now. Um, And if you guys are happy with things this way, they might stay this way. Or we might try out some new things and bring in some new folks down the road. We'll just have to wait and see. As for what's coming in 2020, a lot. I've got some surprises in the works for you guys that I can't talk about just yet, but there are some things that we can talk about today. Like social media, I'm pretty bad at just about everything except for Facebook, but I am trying. SoDead is on Pinterest and YouTube now. Um, You can find the links on the SoDead website. I've also started a feature called On This Day that's posted on all of the SoDead socials. Um, I've got a whole designated calendar that's separated from my regular calendar, and it's full of important dates pertinent to the episodes that we've discussed. So as those dates roll around, I'll reshare and recap those old episodes. Oh, the discussion group. So in addition to the Facebook page, there is now a SoDead podcast discussion group on Facebook, which is really just a way for you all to interact and connect with one another um, and me a little bit more one-on-one. Uh, merch. So I've got all new merch available on our website that I super love and I'm really excited about. I've been working with local artists Stephanie Black of Creepy Kawaii and Don McVeigh Bomber of Aura Art and Readings to bring you guys some really cool stuff. So that'll grow more as time goes on. Um, on that note, I do also want to say thanks to my buddy Ben Goldman for his help in reworking the theme song and putting together the intro video for the new YouTube channel. Uh, what else? What else? Oh, Patreon. Thank you so much to all of the patrons who have chosen to stick things out during this big transition. If you guys aren't familiar with Patreon, it's basically just a platform through which fans can pay at different levels for bonus content. So early release episodes, bonus episodes, behind the scenes stuff, free merch, all of the tiers and goals have been revamped. So if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, now is the time. Um, Patreon, it's just patreon.com forward slash so dead podcast. What else? What else? Oh, you guys. (laughs) Thank you guys all so much for your continued support. I haven't done this in a while. uh, So I wanted to take a moment to thank all the listeners that have left reviews on Apple Podcasts or the Facebook page since the last time I did this, whenever that was. Uh, If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please take just a couple moments to leave So Dead a review. It helps with rankings, visibility, and all of the things that will help the podcast grow. If you listen through another streaming service that doesn't have a review feature, which I think that's pretty much all of the other ones, you can leave a review on the So Dead Facebook page. Uh, and that I'll see those there. So huge thanks to Apple subscribers, PA05, or is it P-A-H-05? I don't know. I can't tell. Um, my Two Kids Mom, Red Star Kate, Joy's Land, Carrie Zay, Haley MS, Autumn Trendy, La 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 Leah, 88. I want to sing it like Lady Gaga. La 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 Leah. Nope, that doesn't sound like Lady Gaga, does it? Um, that Girl Kells, and D. Ellen B. And then the Facebook fans that have left reviews, um, Kate Skaronic, I probably said that wrong, I'm sorry, Kate, Jackie Fan, Heather Hansen, Melissa Hoffman, Della Murin, Amanda Wiseman Aldrich, Jenna Smith-Perez, Amy Rabideau, 
Teresa Slate Bagster, Aaron Masterson Doak, Jason Emmons, and Amy Wolfgram. If you want to hear your name on the podcast, you know what you've got to do. Just leave a review on Apple Podcasts or the So Dead Facebook page. Keep sending me your story ideas, guys. Your insider info on stories I've covered, your memes, your words of encouragement, all of it. It seriously means the world to me. You can email me at sodeadpodcast at gmail.com, contact me through the website, sodeadpodcast.com, or find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, or Patreon. I think that's all of them. Under So Dead Podcast. A new episode of So Dead is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. <laughs>